Welcome to PB and Justice, the Price Benowitz podcast, where you join our hosts, Dane Phillips and Mitch Greenberg, on their journey to prove what makes our lawyers different and why our lawyers have chosen to pursue a life of fighting for justice. This episode is hosted by Dane Phillips and was originally recorded for our criminal defense podcast, Obstructing Injustice. Sit back and enjoy the show. Our guest today is Karen Porter. She's a criminal defense attorney in Virginia for Price Benowitz LLP. She graduated from Penn State University and George Mason University School of Law with honors. After law school, she worked as a law clerk for the Fairfax County Circuit Court judge, where she saw the real practice of law in the courtroom. Prior to joining Price Benowitz, Karen served as, for nine years as the assistant Commonwealth's attorney in Virginia handling cases ranging from DUIs to serious violent felonies. Uh, welcome to the show, Karen. It's great to have you on. Thanks, Dean. It's great to be here. So, obviously, you know, the, the purpose of this podcast is uh, to kind of do a deep dive into criminal defense and, for that matter, prosecution. So, I guess that's a best place to start is, your, you know, your career started as a prosecutor, well, actually, as a law clerk and then a prosecutor, but as far as truly getting into the practice of law, uh, did you believe you were going to begin as a prosecutor, or how did, how did that start? Well, you know, over the years since I've graduated from law school, I guess it's been, gosh, about 20 years or so, I've kind of looked back and thought about, well, how did I get here? And you think about when you're young and what types of things interest you and get you going and motivate you. So I really had to kind of think about it from my perspective now, how I thought of myself way back then, because, you know, you kind of evolve in your choices that you make and your career moves. But I think I knew back then that there was an attraction to criminal law and, and trying to articulate why that is. So if I think about it now, the way I look at it is kind of like this attraction to the rule of law. Do you understand what I mean by that? That's just the that concept in terms of like uh, having the rule of law in our society versus a chaotic society. So having that application of fairness and justice for everybody. Sure. The yin and yang, we, you know, we got to have the, you know, with the scales of justice, it only works if you have both sides. Exactly. So it's not just like the enforcement of laws. And you think of a prosecutor, she's enforcing the laws. There is that. I mean, each prosecutor is different. But I look back and I like to think of myself as someone that's trying to use the best judgment possible and not just out to enforce laws and get wins um, in the courtroom. I just was never like that. So I think now, and I think that's how I still feel in terms of making sure that my clients get equal justice, right? So the application of the law is getting the best uh, defense possible. Um, because if we didn't have that law and order, so to speak, you know, we'd be living in a world of chaos. And then, then it's the, you know, the great and the powerful that would rule the roost, right? There, whoever has money, uh, influence um, could get, you know, special treatment. So that's kind of, Probably more than what you were asking for, but I was reflecting. <laughs> well, definitely, it's a myth that 
all criminal defense attorneys do not get along with prosecutors. It's a myth that uh, somehow there's this rooted animosity that uh, between the two groups and that all, uh, you know, quote unquote, from a defense attorney's perspective, that all prosecutors are bad. That's just simply not true. Uh, you know, in any profession, defense lawyers included, uh, there are good and bad on both sides, you know, people who pursue justice, you know, and as far as prosecutors are concerned, who are true ministers of justice, who are, are do it the right way and are, you know, pillars in the community. So uh, I think, you know, without a doubt, one of the things that, uh, you know, a myth that can be busted for sure from a, the criminal defense side is that there are great outstanding prosecutors who do great work in the community. And, you, you know, as far as that's concerned, we need them as part of the system, the check and the balance. Exactly. And those are the people that, you know, the ones that you feel have a level head that are fair, um, ethical, honest, and reliable. I mean, it goes both ways on both sides of the aisle, um, as, as you know. And that was probably with most professions in the way we just build our relationships in life in general. But so just kind of going back to your question, did I always want to be a prosecutor? I think deep down I, I did um, because I felt a strong attraction to the rule of law and, and fairness and, and justice. But I see just as much, if not more, now what I do fighting a good fight one person at a time, you know, to defend my clients one person at a time versus the overall public as being the client is totally different. And in some ways, you know, a lot more important for the client, obviously, but also for the greater good. Absolutely. And I think that's a great segue into now that you're a criminal defense attorney, what you learned from being a prosecutor that's made you a better defense lawyer, that's made you not only better in the courtroom, but more sympathetic to your clients, more, you know, uh, empathetic to your clients. And then, of course, a, a better zealous advocate uh, in their defense. Well, I think it's a practical matter in terms of skills. Um, it has to be that preparation. Like you can never be overprepared. So as a prosecutor, you, your job is to get into evidence the things that you need to convict somebody, right? And it might seem easy, but there is a lot of work to that. And you, of course, are anticipating objections, you know, witness problems. You never know what's going to happen in the courtroom. So being overprepared is just being prepared in my book. And so you get used to doing that as a prosecutor is constantly anticipating um, what could go wrong and what a defense attorney is going to do, how a judge might rule against you and how are you going to get around that. Um, I think that's bode well for me in my defense work um, because, well, there's being overprepared is always good, like I said, but also in terms of knowing that a prosecutor sometimes um, is going to have problems building a case and actually getting evidence in sometimes or getting a witness to say what they're supposed to say. Um, and so defending, sometimes that trial is, can be um, not as challenging as prosecuting when you have to put tough evidence in, in and, you know, get over that burden of proof. So I guess to your point, in terms of practical, Practically speaking, just being very detail oriented and just knowing every 
permutation where the trial could go. That's really helped me. Um, in terms of teaching me more empathy, I think that was kind of natural for me. Like when I made the transition, I was pretty empathetic from, from the get-go. So I don't know, maybe that was part of what I learned just being in the criminal justice system altogether, like how serious it is and how important it is to all these people's lives to take that seriously. So I'm not sure if that came naturally or came over the course of my work prior. Uh, with that, I mean, in that transition from prosecutor to criminal defense lawyer, uh, transition into private practice, how did that come about? When did you feel you had the the itch, so to speak, that you wanted to make a move? Or did you feel like you had just kind of come to, you know, the end uh, of being a prosecutor and was looking for kind of that new journey? Yeah, I was looking for the next chapter in my life and the position where I was was just wonderful. I was in a great office uh, with you know good mentorships and good relationships with the defense bar and the, the judges and a very good experience. But after nine years, I was just realizing that um, it was just time for a change. And I saw that my skills really could benefit people individually. And I was really wanting to have that challenge. On top of that, I did have a trial experience um, on, a, on a serious case where I really was taken aback by how unsure I was about prosecuting this person. Like, I don't want to get too far into the details, but it really struck me that as the case went on uh, and the trial ended up in a conviction, I just wasn't sure if the victim was telling the truth and it really shocked me. And, and kind of just made my decision to transfer on and, and move on that much easier, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, that they say that, and, and it's true that the toughest cases are the ones where you will 110% believe that your client is innocent on the criminal defense side, because you, you have not only the obligation that you, you follow as a zealous advocate in every case, but that extra burden of knowing uh, that, you know, if, if you're unsuccessful, that an innocent person would be convicted and then to flip that on its, you know, on its head. And then as a prosecutor to have doubts about the credibility of uh, your witnesses, thankfully I've never been in that position. Uh, I, I know uh, and certainly heard stories of prosecutors having to kind of be forced to try some cases that they didn't necessarily feel all that comfortable with and, and prosecutors being candid about how, you know, that kept them up at night. Yeah. And this, that didn't happen till the end. And, and luckily there's a, you know, a good end to the story because the conviction ended up getting um, reversed in terms of it's a long story, but it was a motion to vacate. Uh, and I was, so, so happy just because, you know, I just wasn't a hundred percent sure. And that's just like a sick feeling. And so, um, it just goes to show how sometimes it's just such a gray area. I mean, the truth is somewhere in between. It's all about perspectives, memories. It's just not all black and white. And I think that as I grew as a, an attorney during those nine years, it became even more clear. Um, how important it is to have good lawyers in the courtroom to get to the truth. And it's not just 
open the courthouse doors and put some witnesses on the stand and the truth will be told. It's just not how it is, as you know, Dane. Right. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's just not real life. It's never that easy. It's not, you know, the, uh, as black and white as, as that's, uh, you know, as easy as people would like it to be, or as it plays out in movies and TV, uh, you know, kind of that question that we get of, you know, how do you sleep at night when you represent certain individuals and, you know, kind of going in the same vein, you know, my issue is always, yeah, I always say, look, I, I sleep like a baby. I sleep just fine because I'm only responsible for advocating on my, my behalf, just as the prosecutor's responsible and doing their job and the judge is responsible and doing his or her job. Whereas it's the jury who ultimately makes the decision. It's not me. I, I don't decide whether someone is guilty or not guilty uh, in any trial, regardless of the facts. And so I, that burden is not on my shoulders. Uh, the jury makes that call. As long as you do everything ethical, you, I, I think on both sides, no one should ever have any issues uh, knowing that ultimately the way the system's set up, that it, you know, we've placed that kind of awesome responsibility, that burden, uh, unfortunately, on those 12 uh, random people uh, to make that decision and that they have to make that call as to who to believe, you know, the way the credibility of the witnesses and ultimately that decision in, in judging uh, another person is it's that's not my role. That's not my job. I'm an advocate. So uh, that's, you know, kind of how I'm able to <laughs> that's one of the ways I, I'm able to separate it without uh, laying that burden too heavy. Yeah, no, I think that's correct. You play by the rules and fight as hard as you can, but you, you're you just doing your job at the end of the day, right? And that weighty decision, unfortunately, comes to that the jury that sometimes doesn't know what, what hits them, do they? No, and, and you know, it's I, I generally try to put that in closing of, you know, they've it, the responsibility that they have is one that not many people will ever will ever have uh, in judging another person and one that will have serious life consequences. And it's, yeah, it's one that, yeah, you know, kind of it's unfair, right? To you, you just are forcing uh, random people uh, to disrupt their lives, to show up to court. And then uh, depending on how strong or weak the evidence is, uh, possibly make a decision that will uh, send a person to prison. And that's a, uh, Thank God I've never been in that position either. I've never had to sit in the jury box and make that decision. I think it's it's easier to be an advocate. I know my my position. I know exactly the arguments I need to make. Yeah, that's a good point. I've never been a juror either. Probably it's, never will be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I doubt I doubt we'll ever uh, ever be chosen. Uh, so, what advice to young criminal defense lawyers would you have uh, that's out there and maybe some young prosecutors who are not doesn't have to be young prosecutors but prosecutors who maybe feel like they've hit that point in their career they're about to uh, go into private practice for criminal defense but also young criminal defense lawyers public defenders out there what what advice would you give them uh, in, in just base level advice would make them a better lawyer that that you found if you could go back uh, to the beginning of your career and talk to, you know, baby lawyer, Karen, what would you, what would you tell her? <laughs> well, you know what, I'm going to tell you what um, my judge told me, the judge that I clerk for. And um, 
you know, it's just common sense, but when it comes down to it, your reputation is everything. You know, you've worked so hard throughout your schooling, you graduate law school, you get some jobs during law school, and you're meeting attorneys and judges. Every, every interaction that you have with, with those colleagues and clients and the public, your neighbors, everyone, your reputation is absolutely everything. And you can work a lifetime to build that credibility, honesty, trustworthiness, you know, due diligence. But it just takes, unfortunately, it takes one mistake that could, could crush that. So I would say foster that, protect that, um, develop it, because it's gonna be what serves you well and you can take that everywhere, right? So that's, you know, served me well to be kind of the, the moral compass that you make sure that you are guided by at all times is just honesty, integrity, respect for others, professionalism. You just can't go wrong if you maintain that. So that's what I would say to you know, people starting out. Um, that would be my advice. Great. I mean, that's it's sound advice. It's, it's on, on point, especially, you know, I don't know how Virginia is as far as the bar is concerned, but in South Carolina, I can tell you that we have a very small bar and reputation means a lot. Once you get labeled as someone who is uh, misrepresents the truth or plays dirty, uh, it, things will not go well for you. It's a tight knit group. And if you get that bad reputation, it really, it'll follow you for the rest of your career. And uh, although, you know, it's, you know, what's the, you know, the old saying as far as, uh, you know, you can have that one thing undo so many good things. You could, you know, spent your career doing all this good stuff, but even just one, one moment of uh, lapse in judgment could contain every good thing you've ever done. Absolutely. That's a scary thought, but that's what, I mean, I think that's good that we have our, our rules of professional conduct. We need that, uh, you know, and it's just good guidance to have and a reminder that, you know, the public trusts us. We are held to a higher standard as we, we should be. Absolutely. I mean, and it's definitely given the grave responsibility of uh, putting people's lives, uh, you know, in our, in our hands as far as, you know, from start to finish and the same goes for obviously the prosecutors. Well, I guess as far as that's, uh, you know, kind of the, again, uh, kind of tracking in the same uh, place, what mistakes, you know, what pitfalls, uh, have you seen, have you avoided, hopefully, you know, sometimes the best, you know, uh, learned lessons are from mistakes you've made. What, what mistakes would be out there that you, that you would say, look, criminal defense lawyers avoid, you know, this uh, pitfall that, uh, or this mistake I made during my career? I, I think it's something I consciously, you know, do think about. I can't grab something out of the air that it was me specifically, but just in general, just, um, taking you know one case and having that um make you make poor decisions that could affect like just what we were talking about your reputation going forward so losing sight of our profession and the integrity that we must um maintain you know i'm sort of speaking kind of vaguely but just having probably been there at some point and having a decision to make on, should I walk the line on a certain issue or not? Like, you know, in terms of whether it's disclosing something that's 
something that you probably don't have to disclose in terms of maybe to opposing counsel, but what's, what should you do versus what you have to do? Kind of the ought and is conundrum of trying to decide, you know, what, you know, what, what should be done versus uh, what the rules require. Yes, exactly. So I think that it's just, you know, just like going back to when I was a prosecutor, I give the whole file, like an open file, like why hide something? What is the point of that? It doesn't serve justice and it doesn't help anyone. So it's similar to that. Like it's not a game. We're not hiding the ball. Um, we're not playing tricks. We're not playing gotcha. Let's just get to, let's get to, um, you know, what's important and playing by the rules. And we're talking, I'm talking kind of vague, I guess, <laughs> um, but it's the same vein. Um, other mistakes, I think, like as a practical matter would be, you know, not taking good notes and documenting. I think it's really important to be able to document, you know, phone calls that you have, um, you know, emails are a good way to track communication, but not everything is always in writing. Keeping CYA, CYA always. Yeah, absolutely. CYA. And frankly, you know, for me, as I get older, writing things down benefits me because then I don't have to rely solely on my memory. And we so can, and you can only juggle so much. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the thing. We have so much going on. So many cases in yes. life. In life, there's that. So I think, <laughs> you know, just good bookkeeping and also good communication. Like if you're, you know, being, making sure that you're reaching out to your clients regularly, even when they, they're not reaching out to you. Which that's the number one bar complaint throughout yeah. the country is lack of communication. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've found that it's amazing how many attorneys will either not return a phone call at any point or don't even copy their client on any correspondence that's going out uh, related to the case. And, you know, the two, if you just do those two things, I've found that um, 99% of uh, clients will, will be just happy with the level of communication that's presented. Exactly. Yeah. It's just common courtesy too. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's their cases. <laughs> That's right. So That's right. this is the obstructing injustice podcast. And, you know, obviously I'd like to know what injustice uh, bothers you the most, you know, you know, between bail reform, junk science, jailhouse snitch, uh, you know, eyewitness misidentification. There's so many of those kind of top five factors that lead to uh, essentially innocent people being put in prison, you know, that that's been identified by the uh, innocence project of the five factors that lead to a wrongful conviction. Uh, so when it comes to systemic issues in the criminal justice system, what's, what's the one that just uh, bothers you the most? Well, I can say what really sticks out to me is a problem. And it's really, there's only a few states that have this, but Virginia is one of them. We have jury sentencing in Virginia. The, the way that it works, it's a bifurcated trial. So the jury would hear the evidence on guilt or innocence or guilty, not guilty. If they determine that the person's guilty, then there's a second phase for just punishment. So the prosecutor, that's when they would put in, you know, victim impact statements or criminal record. And then the defense can put on mitigating evidence as well. But the problem with that is it's so unpredictable what 12 people or seven if it's misdemeanor what they're going to come down with as a sentence and especially if you're dealing with a, a situation where a judge 
in a lot of cases, let's just take like a, a DUI, for instance, for a first offense DUI, most judges would not impose any active time, but a jury cannot suspend time, right? And they can't give probation. They can just give fines and jail. So it's a real deterrent on big cases and small cases for jury trial. And to me, it's just so fundamentally unfair. Um, now the judges in Virginia do have the power to reduce a jury recommendation. I don't think I've ever seen it happen. They usually take the jury's recommendation and impose it. So I just find that to be so just unfair and such a deterrent to our right to have a trial by jury. So I'm fascinated. We don't have uh, that in South Carolina. So I'd, I'd like to drill down a little bit because I'm sure in many states they don't have that. And uh, so with the jury determining or at least recommending a sentence, uh, so they're not able to do a split sentence or a suspended sentence. Correct. And so do judges ever take the recommendation and do split sentences or suspended sentences to probation? They do. Now, what the judges can do is they can tack on a period of um, post-release supervision, six months to three years. But um, I, honestly, as a routine, you don't see judges, let's say the jury gives 10 years. It would be unusual in my experience. And of course, it's just this little old me, right? Um, it would be unusual for the judge to then suspend half of that. It, it, would, he would impose the 10 years and then tack on some post-release supervision. That's what I've seen. Now, he can reduce it. So if it's something outside the bounds of you know, reasonableness, you know, a judge could reduce it, but they usually don't um, because they look at it as if the jury has you know, made a collective recommendation and it's, well, it's a legal sentence, so why shouldn't the judge impose it and they probably also look at well he wanted to go to trial you know yeah um, i mean it's it's interesting you know in south carolina uh bench trials are, are fairly rare except in low-level summary court uh, magistrate municipal court cases uh but out, you know in general sessions kind of the the bigger felony cases uh bench trials are incredibly rare and it's pretty consistent i mean although trial tax is unconstitutional. If you go to trial and you're found guilty, there's a good likelihood, you know, and this is just based on data, uh, you know, the, the data absolutely supports that the likelihood of you receiving a sentence on the upper end of that sentencing range is very good. Uh, the likelihood is very high. And so it, it is consistent in the sense that I'm able to tell uh, you know, my, my clients that, you know, if we go to trial and, and you know, we, we don't prevail, uh, that you're, you're found guilty, that uh, you need to expect, or at least there is a good likelihood that the sentence you would receive could be uh, on the higher end of that sentencing range. So there is some at least predictability in, in ours, uh, but the, a lot of our sentencing ranges are very, you know, very wide. So, so for armed robbery in South Carolina, it carries a mandatory minimum of 10 years if convicted up to 30 years. And so, you know, that, that's obviously a big difference for someone to make, to mm -hmm. make a, to make a decision whether to proceed. 
but I find that definitely interesting. Is there a lot of bench trials in Virginia? Well, there's a lot more than, I mean, other, other states that don't have that because there's not much of a downside for the defendant. Right. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> we have the fear factor here and it's really hard. You know, I could say, you know, you could go to trial with a judge. He'll probably sentence you within the sentencing guidelines. It'd be great. Now, maybe the change could be that um, the jury could have sentencing guidelines. You know, maybe that would be a fix that would solve the problem a little bit. So if you say it's a, an armed robbery in Virginia, I assume that there is a, a sentencing range. Is that fair to say? Right. There's a sentencing range, but then there's something separate called the sentencing guidelines. You guys have those, right? And on the state level, we do not. We just have the range. Oh, okay. Interesting. So yeah, so Virginia does have sentencing guidelines, which is similar to the federal guidelines, the same concept. Um, it takes into account the person's record, you know, the facts of the case. Uh, you know, I, I think that's something that, you know, as defense lawyers, we need to continue to push to get to help because in, on the state level cases, we, we don't have that extra guidance. Hmm. Interesting. So now let's do a little bit of cross-examination. I'm going to spit fire, you know, five quick uh, questions to you. You know, they're not nothing serious. It's just more of, you know, getting to know you better, uh, kind of getting it out there. So what's your favorite law-related movie? A Few Good Men. Good. And that's a good choice. How about the favorite law-related book? Uh, to Kill Mockingbird. Ah, you go on with the classics here. So uh, <laughs> which lawyer in history would you want to meet if you could? Uh, can I give you two? Yeah, absolutely. There's no, there's no rules. <laughs> okay. Um, Sandra Day O'Connor. Nice. And Abraham Lincoln. There That's you go. Kind of one, you know. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm still trying to, I need to get the, that latest book of, uh, Abraham Lincoln's like the transcripts from some of his trials. Uh, I can't remember the name of the book, but somebody was telling me about it and it sounded incredible. So. Oh, that does sound interesting. I haven't heard that. Yeah, I'll have to go find it. It's basically like some maybe, or, or maybe it's more like his memoirs of trying to kind of recreate how the trials went. I, either way, I'll try, I'll find the book name and send it to you, but I, it yeah. sounds, it sounds incredible. All right. List one thing that's made you a better lawyer that you do. It doesn't have to be obviously law. In fact, not law related. I, um, let me include that. What's one thing that you do that makes you a better lawyer that's not law related? Um, well, let's see. Does boxing count? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I do some boxing. Um, well, just for fun, just to work out. But I think that kind of, you know, helps get my aggression out. Uh, stress. I don't know. Manage stress. stress levels. Competition, too. There's a lot uh, of that. Put fear, <laughs> put fear in the hearts of the uh, opposing prosecutors. Yeah. No, but on a serious note, I think that, um, I think I'm a good listener. I think with my, my friends and family, I try to be a good listener, and I think that does help me in the courtroom and helps me with my clients. Absolutely. All right, last one. What would you do if you were not a lawyer? What's your dream job? <sighs> well, I think it would be really cool to own a beautiful sailboat marina somewhere very beautiful where there's crystal blue, clear, water and sunshine every day that's what i'd like to do yeah you can't beat that you, <laughs> you 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 literally can't so all right this is how we we end uh the podcast 
uh, war stories. You have a choice. You can either tell us about a specific case you had and why it's, you know, kind of that poignant moment of uh, your career, that, you know, that pinnacle case or a, a specific moment uh, that happened either in the courtroom or with a client that was funny. Uh, so this is your chance, war story, specific case, specific moment. Uh, you know, what's, what's one thing that stood out uh, that uh, is just, you know, you're sitting there at the, you know, the quote unquote cocktail party and you got to, you got to do your pitch. Uh, it's your turn in the, uh, <laughs> to tell your story. Um, well, let's see about six months, ago, six months or so ago, I had a, a sexual assault trial in federal court and there was an FBI agent who was tasked with investigating. And it was pretty apparent that he really didn't do much of an investigation. And this alleged assault happened on an airplane that holds like close to 300 people. My co-counsel and I had split up the witnesses and he was my witness to cross-examine. And it was just quite fun. I mean, I just have to say, I mean, he kind of made my job easy because he went down that sort of path of he wanted to be combative with me, with me on certain things in my questioning. And uh, so not to give you the total play by play, but we got to the point where I asked him like, how many people he interviewed. And basically he interviewed the victim and like a flight attendant or something. And I asked him if he'd interviewed anyone else on the plane and he said, no. And you know, there's almost 300 people on the plane. So I just went through like, you know, the person in 26A, the person in 26B, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No, no, no. And then I don't remember what line it was, Dane, but he basically was saying, well, I asked him why, why didn't he bother or something like that. And he was basically saying, well, I know how it would end up. I know nobody would have seen anything. And so that was one of the times that the jury and the judge were just laughing. I mean, they're just like laughing in the middle of this case where it just struck me as, well, I guess this cross-examination is going pretty good if I have the, the people in the jury box and the judge laughing. So. No, I, I think that's, that was the tale. Once you, once they laughed and it was clear that I think at that point, the tide had, absolutely turned and you had uh sealed the uh not guilty yes it came back not guilty so that was that was good so it, it was a good ending and it was kind of a fun cross-examination you know but he started it i wouldn't have picked on him so hard but he started it well i mean the lesson learned for him uh, you know it's what <laughs> and it's one of those things where uh, you know a skilled uh testifier so to speak if they just lean into it it really takes a lot of the sting or the uh, effectiveness of a good cross away. You know, it's when they fight and, and resist common, common sense. And really, if they just kind of steer headwind into a, a good cross, it, it does take a lot of steam out of it. Uh, and so I, I love when you got somebody being combative for no reason. Yeah. Yeah. So that just kind of sticks out something kind of recent and at least it's like a, a good ending, right? No, it's a, it's a great ending. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, as you know, and anybody that's listening, it's never been able to have this uh, feeling. But to hear those uh, two sweet words, that two-word verdict, uh, and be able to walk somebody uh, out of the courtroom uh, is is one of the greatest feelings a person can have in their life. It, it's just uh, indescribable. It is amazing. Yes, so true. 
So again, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I mean, obviously I know this is not your day job being on podcast, but we absolutely, you know, glad to have you on, enjoyed it. Uh, great guest. Uh, so, you know, one of the things, if uh, people were trying to find you, uh, where can they find you on uh, online, social media? You work for Price Benowitz uh, LLP, yep. and obviously you're out of the Virginia office. That's right. And I'm, I also use my maiden name as my middle name. So if you Google, it's Karen Riley Porter, might be an easier way to find me. And I work for Price Benowitz. Um, so you should be able to just plug me into Google and find our website and find the different um, practices that our, um, our firm does and a little bit about me and our other criminal defense attorneys at the firm. Oh, thank you so much. So obviously thank everyone for listening. Uh, you know, follow us on social media, on Facebook at the obstructing injustice podcast on Twitter at injustice pod. Uh, obviously we'll, I'll, I haven't created yet a thing in the, in the works, creating an Instagram account, uh, still getting, getting this, uh, project uh, off the ground but again thank everybody for listening you know follow us on social media download uh, listen subscribe so you'll continue to see additional future episodes uh, this podcast is sponsored by price benowitz llp uh, so definitely a shout out to our firm that uh you know we're we're very fortunate to have the opportunity to work for a firm that uh, does things the right way and gives us the resources we need to uh, to be zealous advocates. And so uh, now time for the boring uh, legal disclaimer. So obviously this isn't legal advice. It's just general information. And some of it's just for entertainment. Like clearly there's no attorney client relationship and uh, any past uh, results do not guarantee future results. Each case is different, but if you have a case, you know, obviously give uh, Karen Riley Porter a call and she'll be happy to talk to you and, you know, kind of do a strategy session, a legal consultation uh, to see, you know, what potential defenses you have or, and see if, you know, you're the right fit. Uh, you know, certainly, you know, that whole best criminal defense attorney uh, kind of line that you see out there in advertisements is it's, it's a myth. Uh, it's all about relationships. You need to sit down uh, with each attorney and attorney client relationships, like any relationships built on trust. And so when you sit down with a lawyer, you look in their, you know, their training, their experience, their results. And ultimately you go with the gut feeling about which lawyer is the best for you. But again, this isn't legal advice. It's just a, just a podcast. And so uh, feel free to reach out to us. Feel free to reach out to Karen. If you got a potential case in Virginia and certainly uh, thank you for listening.